Well, good morning. If you haven't already, I want to invite you to turn in your copy of the Scriptures to uh, the Gospel of John. Uh, we'll be, as Kevin read, uh, there in uh, chapter 2. This is a familiar text to many of us. We've, we've heard this text again and again. You, you probably know it better as the, uh, the story of the water into wine. We love to think about that story, uh, to talk about it, but um, we think about this being Jesus' first miracle. This is uh, where he comes onto the scene, if you were, and um, when we say first miracle, I think it would be more appropriate if we keep to John's language. John, in the gospel, he, in verse 11 of this chapter that we were reading, he calls it the first of Jesus's signs. Notice that he uses the word signs instead of the first of Jesus's miracles. Now, why do you suppose that John talks to us about it being a sign and not a miracle? Well, this distinction, I think, is important for us to understand. As you know, the, the purpose and the function of a sign is to do something. Right, kids, look at me. When you're, when you're going down the road, the highway, and you see two arches that are yellow, kind of look like this, what do you know that's coming? McDonald's, right? McDonald's is coming, but the sign is not McDonald's. You wouldn't stop at the sign and say, ooh, there's McDonald's. No, you say, McDonald's is coming. And so, same thing here. The sign is pointing beyond itself to something of greater significance. The Greek word sign refers to a signal or a token that distinguished a person or a thing from others. So what John is doing, he's letting his readers know and now letting us know that what Jesus did at this wedding and all of the other miraculous signs that he did for that matter are not for their own sake. It wasn't about the wine that Jesus is doing. Jesus is pointing beyond the mere water turning into wine. We are supposed to see something greater here in this passage. Namely, what Paul does in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, where he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. So for those of you that enjoy taking notes or note takers, I want to give you the overarching theme of this passage. Overarching theme today is that this sign is that God in Christ is replacing the old with the new and living way through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The old has gone and the new has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, that's the overarching theme. I want to take a deep dive. Let's take a little closer look at this story. So we enter into this story, and it, is span, it spans this one amazing week. In verse 1, it says that it's the third day, which if you go back to verse 19 of chapter 1, and you follow the days, this becomes the seventh day since Jesus began his earthly ministry. Now this, this third day, it's referring back to the passage right before where uh, the call of Philip and Nathaniel, chapter 1, 
Verse 43, we know that Jesus, remember, he was baptized in the River Jordan, and then immediately he was, he was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted for 40 days. And now, upon his victorious return, he enters into his public ministry, and it's no coincidence that it takes place at a wedding. We love weddings. Weddings are a joyous occasion. They're a, a, a huge cause for celebrating. However, the weddings uh, these days aren't like those in the first century Palestine. You see, weddings then were a major social event, especially for the poor. They were typically large and lengthy occasions lasting perhaps a week long. And unlike our modern wedding traditions, dads with daughters, you're going to like this, um, the bride's uh, family didn't pay. Uh, it was the groom's responsibility to pay for the festivities. And the ceremony would take place late in the evening after a great feast. And then after the ceremony, the bride and groom were taken to their home in a torch-lit parade, complete with a canopy held over their heads. They were, and, and they wouldn't go just the short route. They'd take the, the longest, lengthiest route possible so that everyone had the opportunity to wish them well. And instead of a honeymoon... They held um, an open house for a week, and the newlyweds were considered to be the king and queen, and they would actually wear crowns and dressed in bridal robes, and their word was considered to be law. Now, not many of those attending this wedding, or I would say many of those attending these weddings, would uh, be those that are living in poverty and very difficult conditions. So attending a wedding like this this supreme event was a big deal. People could go through their whole life and never attend a celebration like this again. And now, why do I say all that? I just want to give you some context to, to how big a deal this really is. If you were to, to insert yourself into this wedding, you would know that this is not just a, a casual, ho-hum kind of a wedding. This is a really big deal in the life of this town, in the life of these people. And Jesus and his mother were invited. Jesus and his disciples, it tells us, were invited as well. Uh, so the magnitude of this event cannot be overstated. And if you're looking at the text there in verse 6, it tells us uh, what the guest list was like. It says that there were these water pots, these jars, and how much water that they would have just... Uh, goes to highlight and show that there were a lot of people that were coming. But then there's a problem. In the midst of this massive celebration, something goes wrong. The host, the bridegroom, ran out of wine. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us. Uh, we don't know whether he planned poorly or uh, uninvited guests showed up to the wedding and they exceeded their capacity. We don't know if he... Uh, ran short of funds. You know, he spent too much on the flowers. We don't know. But he did not have enough wine. That's what we know. But whatever the cause here, whether it's human wisdom or strength or resources, all of these things that we uh, are familiar to us, there is a need that the human host could not meet. Why don't you pause for a moment and think about that in your life. There is a need that the human host could not provide. 
He had to look outside of himself to supply what he needed. And this presented at least two problems. First, this was a massive social embarrassment for the groom. And second, there is evidence in the ancient Jewish world that if provisions such as this failed, then not only was it an embarrassment, but the groom could face a lawsuit. And how serious do they take their hospitality? And it continues to be the same way in the Middle East. So we find here Jesus' mother, she's aware of the problem, and she immediately goes to her son who's there with him, with her and his disciples, and she says, son, that there's a problem. The wine has run out. Do something. Fix it. And then we get this next phrase, this very peculiar, somewhat surprising, very surprising saying where Jesus says in verse 4, if you're looking at it, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, I think Jesus knew it would be surprising when he said it. And I think John, the, the gospel writer, knew it would be surprising when he wrote it. So why is it in there? What, what's the point? There are several questions that we can ask when it comes to this. And the first is, why did Jesus address his mother this way? Why did he call her woman? To us, that sounds plain rude, uh, actually kind of cold and harsh. But in Jesus' day, woman was a title of respect. Uh, it was like us using ma'am or madam. Um, and Jesus used this same word when he addressed his mother Mary from the cross in John chapter 19, verse 26, or in chapter 4, verse 21, when he addresses the woman at the well. So it's not meant to be a dig at her, say, hey, woman, he's saying, ma'am, like almost in an unfamiliar way, like it's not his mom, right? And how upsetting this might be for her. The second statement, what does this have to do with me? Uh, this phrase has given scholars troubles through the years. Uh, it's a strange and a little bit awkward. It literally says this, Jesus said, what is it to me, to, what is it to you, to me? Now, interestingly, this little phrase is used five other times in the New Testament. And every time that it's spoken, it's spoken by a demon to Jesus. When Jesus intrudes uh, in their domain and he starts to exert his power where they were once in control, they say, what do you have to do with us, O Son of God? What is this you're doing to us? What do you have to do with us? And the gist of this little phrase seems to be, I don't want you pressing in here. You, don't, um, you shouldn't be coming to me like this. This is not your affair. So in other words, Jesus, what he's doing here is he's giving his mother a measured re rebuke. He's just embarked on his mission and the purpose of his coming and his actions. He's telling us in this measured rebuke or telling her and we're seeing it is that his actions are absolutely bound to his Father's will in heaven. And no one on earth controls what he is doing. He is absolutely going for what the Father has told him to do. Listen to how Jesus describes it in chapter, in chapter 8 of this same Gospel. Chapter 8, verse 28, Jesus says, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. 
Likewise, in John chapter 5, verse 17 uh, through 19, he says, My Father is working until now, and I am working. The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. So in other words, His miracles are not at His mother's disposal or anyone else. He is entirely in the sway, in the will, and the purpose of His heavenly Father. He and the Father are one. They have one purpose, one will. Now what makes this... uh, even more strange is that Jesus just goes ahead and does exactly what his mom asked him to do anyway, right? And so what, what is the deal here? Why is Jesus seemingly giving his mom the stiff arm when, he come, when she comes at him at first? Well, friends, Jesus is making clear, not only to his mother and his brothers and sisters, but to all the rest of us, that physical relationships on earth would not control him or obligate him. His mother, his physical family, would have no special advantage to guide his ministry. His mother and his physical family would have no special advantage to receive his salvation. Mary must now come to grips like every other person. She must now understand and know like every other person we must come to Jesus as the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Friends, the pathway into His favor, the pathway into favor with Jesus is by faith, not by family. This is wonderful news for all of us. As John Piper says, it doesn't matter what family line we come from. Your parents may be the the most ungodly people you know, that will not keep you from the favor of Jesus. Everyone must relate to Christ by faith alone. Which is exactly what we see from Mary in verse 5. She turns and she says to the servants, do whatever He tells you. In faith, she commits the matter to him. She doesn't know what he will do or even if he will do anything, but she trusts him. And this simple instruction, do whatever he tells you, has lasting implications for us as a church today and the people of God. You see, when you run out of wine, when you fail in wisdom and power and resources, or when you fail to meet the righteous requirements of God's law, or you fail to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, when you fail, the word is, you need not to fear. Jesus, your Lord, the groom, the master of the great wedding feast, has infinite power and infinite love, and He is able to make all grace abound to you. So trust Him. Jesus will provide the wine you need. Just do whatever He tells you. Just do whatever He tells you. Now, in our story, at this point, what would you expect Jesus to do? He had the perfect opportunity to reprimand the people for indulging in their wine. He could have stepped up and said, you should not be abusing uh, this gift that God has given us. But instead, 
he does something. He makes more wine. Verse 6 tells us that there were six stone water jars that were used for the Jewish rites of purification. That is, for ceremonial washing. You can go back in Leviticus and read about all the washing and all the cleansing. Matter of fact, if you've been in your Bible reading and you've finished through Leviticus, you'll know that it is a lot about holiness and cleanliness before God. There is a lot to be said about being clean. And so they would take this very seriously. There is roughly 180 gallons of water in, in these jars. Each wedding guest who would come to this gathering had to go through this purification rite before they could enter into the ceremony. If nothing else, they would uh, at least wash their hands and their feet when they arrived for the wedding feast. So Jesus told the disciples then, or the servants, to do two things. He says, fill them up. Fill up the water pots, and draw some out and take it to the master of the feast, tells us this in verse 8, which they did. And then the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and basically compliments the groom for saving the best wine for last. Now, many throughout history have used this part of the passage to address the issue of drinking wine. Can we drink wine? Is the Bible giving us any indication, Christian, whether or not we can have an alcoholic beverage? Whether it's acceptable or not? And Christians have loved to debate this issue, or let me say it like this, Satan loves to get Christians distracted from the meaning of this text so that they will focus on less important things. There's two points that I think Jesus is making here, and it's not about can we drink wine. Two points that John is highlighting in this transforming power of Jesus. You're taking notes. First, that you and I can and should celebrate that the Messiah has come. This is good, amazing news. It's not a surprise, again, that Jesus' first miracle comes at a wedding. He's called the bridegroom. He is coming. This is a joyous event in the life of the people. And so Jesus comes on scene here in his public ministry proclaiming the bridegroom has come. And as Luke chapter 7 verse 34 says, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. He is festive. He's come in a happy way and we should be happy as well. So friends, this means that our lamenting, our sorrow, over the brokenness, the injustice, the sinfulness, the devastation, and the death that we find. The, the lamenting that we have in our lives over this, this desperate situation, right? The wine is gone. The wine is gone. is transformed through the person and work of Jesus. And we should be shouting and celebrating the fact that the Messiah has come. This Bible tells us that the joy of our salvation, restore to us, God, restore to us the joy of our salvation. That is, restore to us the, and remind us that the perfect bridegroom has arrived, and not only that, but he is coming again. Amen? You see, we, just like the groom in this story, all of us, fall short. We let 
the wine run out. All husbands fail to be what they ought to be. All wives fail to be what they ought to be. All children disobey their parents. All political leaders and governmental systems fail. Every one of us in this fallen world have let and continue to let. That's what Romans 3.23 means. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That phrase, fall short of the glory of God, doesn't mean just one time. It's actually a continuous phrase. All fall short and continue to fall short of the glory of God. All of us have let the wine run out. But the Gospel declares that Jesus, Jesus, the perfect and all-providing bridegroom, transforms water into wine. Jesus provides for all those who will trust in Him. John, in his letter, his first letter, chapter 1, verse 7-9, through 9, listen to how he explains Jesus' provision. He says, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us or purifies us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But, friends, if you confess, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us, to purify us from all unrighteousness. This is the good news. The Christian life then becomes one mingled with sorrow. No wine. And incredible joy. The Messiah, the Lamb of God, brings the best wine ever. The forgiveness of sins. This is our great hope. This is our eternal joy. That because of Jesus' sinless life, because of His death on a Roman cross, a cruel death that took place, my place, and His resurrection from the grave, we have a provision. We are saved. We are made right with God. No longer enemies. No longer strangers and aliens. No longer children of wrath. No longer under condemnation, but justified redeemed, adopted into the house, adopted into the family of God. Because of Jesus, all those who come to Him in faith, who completely rely on His finished work alone to save them, are set free and are at peace with God and transformed from death to life. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Are you daily reminding yourself of this truth. I wonder, friends, do you set this Gospel before you when you wake up in the morning? Is it what fills you and sustains you and keeps you going? When you're staring down the face of doubt and pain and disease and confusion, when you feel unloved and unworthy, do you remember that Jesus has transforming power that makes all things new. Is that what fills you up in the mornings? Is that what sustains you throughout this day? What if it did? What if you did think about that? What if you woke up 
every morning and purposefully reminded yourself that the bridegroom has come and you should celebrate, how would your life be different? What would it look like in the morning? How would the circumstances of your day change? Have you ever had somebody ask you, I'm sure you have, they ask you this question, uh, how was your day? We have teenage kids and you with parents, you know, it's like pulling teeth, trying to get out of them how their day was. You know, so you said, how was your day? And oh, it was good, it's fine. Um, or maybe spouses are that way. How's your day? Well, you kind of have to set yourself up before you ask that question, what makes for a good day? Like, otherwise, you're just going to be pointing to all the circumstances, and you're going to let the out, things outside of you, out, outside of your control, they're the things that get to dictate whether your day is good or not, not the truth of the gospel. So right from the get-go, say, my day is good because the bridegroom has come and the wine is not going to run out. Right? The second thing that we need to notice that is that Jesus chooses uh, these water jars that were used for bathing uh, and not the drinking pots. Now, why, why would he tell them to go fill up the, the wash tubs, the bathtubs, if you were, instead of the drinking cups? Why is he doing that? I think Jesus is making a statement about what makes stained and dirty sinners right before a holy God. What purifies them and makes them clean? You see, Jesus in what he is doing, he is pointing beyond, remember it's a sign, he's pointing beyond himself to, or beyond this, this miracle to his own death as the ultimate purification for sin that would nullify and replace the Jewish purification rituals there is one way to be clean before God and John says it plainly in Revelation chapter 7 verse 14 they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb so the glory of of, of Jesus is that he alone once and for all made purification for sin and you don't have to turn to religious practices you need to turn to Jesus and it's nothing but the blood that will purify those who come to him. And for all those asking, is it enough? I mean, I know Jesus died for my sins, but what about, what about my continued struggles? You might be thinking, when I come to Jesus, I'm forgiven, but he doesn't know everything that I'm going to continue to do, or I haven't even sinned yet. And so what about all of those sins? What happens to those? In other words, you might be asking, is what Jesus did and what he supplied, is it sufficient? Is it enough to guarantee a not guilty verdict on the day of judgment? Is it enough? Notice the phrase, my favorite phrase in this passage. The servants filled the jars. How far did they fill them? He said, it filled them to the brim. Think of the significance of that statement. If it is filled to the brim, that means that nothing else could be added to them. And just as nothing else could be added to the jars, otherwise it's spilling over, neither can you add anything to Christ's purifying work. Many of us, I think, 
can resonate with and can, and can um, intellectually, maybe even functionally, uh, believe that Jesus paid it all. He supplied everything that we need. He supplied it to the brim to be right with God. And yet, when I ask you, like I've asked you all before, how does God feel about you right now? And if you, like me, often run to my performance, if the first thing that you think of when, whenever someone asks you, how does Jesus feel about you? Or how does God feel about you? If you start running through a list of all your failures and all the things that you didn't measure up and you didn't perform, I wonder, are you trusting in what Jesus has supplied for you? Because our hope is, as Christians, our, is that when we think about our performance before God, we don't think of ours, we think of Christ's. We think of the fact that He gave every ounce of His blood so that you would be right before God, all the way to the brim. There's nothing that you need to do, friend, to add to what Christ has already done. Matter of fact, anything that you add, you actually subtract from Him. Think about the water pots. If it's filled to the brim and you start adding your own water to it, I want to see if It'll continue to make wine. It actually spills out what Jesus has already provided. We have no need to do any work. Like the song we said, we can rest in Jesus. We can come to Him and rest knowing that He has completed everything and He has given all that we need to the brim for our righteousness. The master of the feast came to the groom and said, man, you, you saved the best wine for last. Who does that? The groom knows that he has nothing to brag about when the master comes to him and praises him because he didn't supply the wine. He has nothing to brag about. It says that God did it. And this is the anthem that we say, church, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, your own washing." It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. If anyone is in Christ, that is, if you are trusting and relying on His perfect life, death, and resurrection to secure for you an eternal life, you are a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. I want to end with one final observation. At the end of our passage, it says, verse 11, this was the first sign Jesus did in Canaan and Galilee and manifested His glory. And it says, and the disciples believed in Him. And the disciples believed in Him. Not everyone. There were a lot of people there. Not everyone trusted and believed in Jesus, but His disciples did. And John in his gospel tells us the purpose that he's writing. He is writing this sign. He could have written a whole bunch of other things, John said, chapter 20. But he says, I'm writing this so that you might believe. And that by believing you may have life, abundant life in his name. Friend, is that what you're believing today? If you haven't believed and you're not trusting in Jesus, and you feel like the wine is all run out, Turn to Jesus, the author and perfecter of all things, and trust 
in his death to be what makes you right with God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, we uh, hear your word. God, it is good and uh, it nourishes our soul. And so many times, Lord, because many of us have heard this text over and over, many of us uh, will just leave here unchanged. But we hope in, trust in, believe in the transforming power of our Savior. And so, God, would you not let us leave? Each and every one of us, would you uh, work in us to believe even more? Lord, for those who are not believing, would you draw them to yourself? Lord, would you allow them to see uh, the glory of the Savior here in this text? That they would put their trust in the work that he has done and not their own. Lord, we love you, we submit to you, and we ask that you fill us to the brim this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.